Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to help us to understand your teaching now and to meditate upon the wonders that you have done. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we are looking at this passage that is before you in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, and it speaks so powerfully of the Lord's servant. Isaiah mentions a number of times in his prophecies about the Lord's servant, and here we see that this servant is mentioned in verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. And from then on, we see a number of things taught about this servant of the Lord. Now, who is this servant of the Lord? Who is this servant? Well, we understand that it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is clearly taught to us in the pages of Scripture because in the New Testament we see that Philip talks to an Ethiopian eunuch about this very passage of Scripture and points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We see in Acts chapter 8 that the eunuch is sitting in his chariot and we read in verse 32 that he's reading this passage of Scripture. And what passage of Scripture was he reading? It says, He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? That passage of Scripture that we just read in Isaiah, it is quoted there in the New Testament. And what is the result? Well, the eunuch asked Philip in verse 34 of Acts chapter 8, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? The Ethiopian eunuch is asking Philip, Who is this servant of the Lord? And what is the response? Well, in verse 35 we read, Then Philip began with this, that very passage of Scripture, and told him the news about Jesus. This passage of scripture is about the Lord Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus? Well, we understand from the teaching of the Bible that he is the Son of God himself. So what does Isaiah 53 teach us about the Lord Jesus Christ, about God's Son as God's servant? Well, as we look at this passage that we've just read, we see that there is a humiliation of God's servant, of God's Son. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 33, where this passage is quoted, it actually says, in his humiliation he was deprived of justice. We understand that the Lord's servant, God's son, Jesus Christ himself, was humiliated. He was humiliated, we see in the New Testament, as a fulfilment of the humiliation that is described here in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. So how was the Son of God humbled? How was he humiliated? We understand that there are multiple ways that the Son of God was humbled, that he was humiliated. First way is, of course, by his incarnation, by the fact that the Son of God took on human flesh is a humbling experience when you think you made all things and then you take on the flesh of a creature. It is a humiliating experience. We also understand that the Son of God was humiliated by his death by the fact that he was made subject to the powers of death, and not just any death, but a torturous death, which we see described in the New Testament, but also here in Isaiah 53. We see how he was despised and rejected and put through a painful experience, a painful death. But there's another way that we see that the servant was humiliated. He was humiliated by the fact that as a son of God becoming man, secondly, by his death, but also by his burial. And that's what I want to concentrate on this morning. As we remember this Good Friday, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, we also remember his burial. And it's actually mentioned for us in Isaiah 53 as well. Look with me at verse 9. Verse 9 of Isaiah 53 is found on page 731 of your church Bibles. Isaiah 53, verse 9, it says, He was assigned a grave with the wicked 
and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was deceit in his mouth. But why is being buried, why being put in a grave is a humiliation? Why is it an act of humiliation? Why is it a humiliating experience? Well, to answer that question, we've got to ask ourselves, well, what do we usually bury? What do we bury? Well, we usually bury those things that we consider to be useless. It may have been that something was useful once, but now it is useless, and so we bury it. We put it in the trash, and what happens with the rubbish? Well, it goes to the tip. And what do they do at the tip? They put it in the ground. And so we bury everything that's pretty much useless to us, whether it be packaging that was once useful when it was around something, and now we've taken it out and we no longer need the packaging, to even large items of furniture that were once useful to us, but now the springs are gone or it's broken in some part, and so we put it in the trash, we put it in the rubbish, and it goes into the ground. And so this is part of the reason why we bury human bodies. Why? Because the bodies of these humans are no longer useful. They were useful once. They were useful for showing love. Love for what? Well, love for the soul that was within them, but also love for souls that were without, outside of them. The body was functioning well for a time and used for love. But now, once the soul is gone from a body, from a human body, it is useless. It doesn't do anything anymore, whether good or evil. The human body becomes useless once the soul leaves. But what else do we bury? Why, why do we bury things? We bury things that are useless. But... We particularly bury those things that offend the senses. I've just moved house, and it's amazing how many things that are useless still are in our home before we moved. And even after we've moved and I'm unpacking things, I'm like, why do we still have this? We even shifted it from one house to another, and it is useless to us. Why do we still have useless things around the house? Why do we bury some things very quickly and other things we actually hang on to for quite some time? Well, it's because certain things really offend our senses. What sort of senses am I speaking about? Well, the sense of smell and the sense of sight. Those things that offend our sight and offend our sense of smell, we tend to get rid of pretty fast. What am I speaking about? Well, the obvious one is food scraps. We don't let food scraps stick around the house for very long. We get rid of them pretty fast. We make sure they go in the bin or we bury them in the backyard ourselves in some way. Another thing that we are very quick to bury, to get rid of, is human waste. We've seen this for centuries, that humans have made sure that they remove human waste from the house and make sure that it is buried because it offends the senses. It offends the sense of smell and the sense of uh, sight. And we even see this in, in the Bible, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 23. You can turn with me there if you like. It's not a memory verse uh, passage uh, that people would refer to very often, but Deuteronomy chapter 23 is found on page 193, if you have a church Bible, page 193. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 12, page 193. I don't think I've ever read this passage aloud in church before. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 12, it says, Designate a place outside the camp where you can go to relieve yourself. As part of your equipment, have something to dig with. 
And when you relieve yourself, dig a hole and cover up your excrement. For the Lord your God moves about in your camp to protect you and to deliver your enemies to you. Your camp must be holy so that he will not see among you anything indecent and turn away from you. This is the kind of thing that we bury. It offends the senses, and so we bury it. And so why do we bury dead bodies? Why do we bury dead bodies? Well, it's for the same reason. What happens when a body dies? Well, it's not long before bacteria begin their work, and what then happens? The smell starts, and they start to stinketh, as the King James puts it about Lazarus. Once he died, three days later, behold, he stinketh. He smells. The stench is there. And after that, well, worms begin their work. Worms begin their work. I recently acquired a worm farm. Uh, during the lockdown, I think, um, it was only pretty much the hardware stores that were open. And so if you wanted to go shopping and, and buy something for yourself, uh, it had to be at the hardware store. And so I bought myself a, a worm farm. And I've really enjoyed it, uh, taking food scraps out to it, uh, burying them in the worm farm, and then seeing these worms come in and eat everything. Uh, but my children, not so much. They don't like it. And even, to be honest, I, I do enjoy putting the food in and seeing the worms there at their work, but we keep it far removed from the house. We don't keep the worm farm in the kitchen. Uh, we put it outside, and then even then, it's at the very far back part of the yard. And I don't look at it for very long. I just look at it, and, uh, and for a time when I'm there putting the food in, I enjoy it for that moment of seeing nature at work, but... It's not something that I want to watch all the time. And it's the same when it comes to dead bodies. We don't want to watch worms eat the human flesh that is decaying. We don't want to watch it, particularly on someone that we loved and cared for so much. We don't want to watch the process. And so we bury bodies. Why? Because the decaying process offends our senses. The rotting process offends our senses of smell and even of sight. What else do we bury? Why do we bury things? Well, we bury useless things that could actually cause us harm as well. Decomposing bodies can harbour infections. They can harbour the infection by which the person may have died, but they can harbour new infections as the body decomposes. And we understand that the Bible even teaches that a decomposing body, a dead body, can actually be considered unclean by the word of God and... Whoever touches that body in the Jewish ceremonial law was understood to be unclean as well. Look with me at page 150. Uh, so Numbers, chapter 19. Go to page 150 of your church Bible and you see how a, a dead body was considered to be dangerous by the law of God. Numbers, chapter 19. Chapter 19, and I'll read from verse 11. 19, Numbers 19, verse 11, page 150. Whoever touches the dead body of anyone will be unclean for seven days. He must purify himself with the water on the third day, and on the seventh day, then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third and seventh day, he will not be clean. Whoever touches the dead body of anyone and fails to purify himself defiles the Lord's tabernacle. That person must be cut off from Israel because the water of cleansing has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. His uncleanness remains on him. This is the law that applies when a person dies in a tent. Anyone who enters the tent and anyone who is in it will be unclean for seven days, and every open container without a lid fastened on it will be unclean. Anyone out in the open who touches someone who has been killed with a sword, or someone who has died a natural death, or anyone who touches a human bone or a grave 
will be unclean for seven days. We understand that we bury the things that are dangerous to us, and even if it's not a concern here in the ceremonial law for infection, there's obviously the fact that touching a dead corpse makes you dangerous in the eyes of God, that you would become unclean in God's eyes. So why do we bury dead bodies? Why do we put humans in a grave? Well, it's because the corpses are considered useless. They're considered to be offensive to the senses. And they're considered to be dangerous. Even if you make a very nice tomb for someone, no one wants to live in that tomb with the person. So what then is signified by burial? Well, it's humiliating. It's humiliating experience for the corpse, isn't it? For the person that used to inhabit that corpse as a soul was there, it is humiliating for them to be put in a grave. Why? Because that corpse, that body is now being considered to be cut off from the land of the living. And we even see that reference to us in Isaiah 53 where it talks about him being cut off, the Lord Jesus as a servant of the Lord being cut off from the land of the living. How does burial show that society has cut you off? Well, you're buried usually outside the camp. You don't bury someone in your backyard. We have a place that we've designated outside the camp, outside suburbia, we have a place, maybe suburbia all around it, like Wookwood Cemetery here, but it is outside the camp. And you're cut off by others. You don't take yourself to the cemetery. People take you there and they leave you there. You're cut off. You're buried outside the camp. And so that's an act of humiliation. The land of the living says, you are not one of us anymore. We do not want you to acknowledge that you are part of us anymore. You are cut off from the land of the living. So burial shows what? It shows that society condemns you. Condemns you as useless, condemns you as offensive, condemns you as dangerous, and abandons you as a result. So why was the Son of God humbled by being put to death and then being buried? Why would the Son of God be considered useless? Why would the Son of God be considered offensive? Why would the Son of God be considered harmful and then cut off from society? Was it because the Lord Jesus was wicked? You say, but how would that explain burial? How would sin explain burial? Well, don't we consider wicked people to be useless, to be offensive to us, to be harmful to us as a society? And don't we often cut them off from the land of the living, so to speak? We take them outside the camp and put them in a place where they can't be offensive to us, where they can't be harmful to us. That's what we do with the wicked, isn't it? And that's what God does with the wicked. We understand that the wages of sin is death. What is the process of death for? It's to remove wicked people from the land of the living. God takes those who are dark in sin and puts them in darkness by death. So does that explain why Jesus, God's servant, was buried? Well, Isaiah 53 is very careful to tell us that it's not because of his sin. Isaiah 53, verse 9, it says, He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. It seems to be implying there that if he had done violence and had, done, had deceit in his mouth, then, yes, it's reasonable that he would have a grave. But he did not commit any acts of violence, and he had no deceit in his mouth. So why was he buried? Why was he assigned a grave? Why was he given a grave? 
Why would God let his servant, the Son of God, who was pure and holy, why would he let him be buried? Well, it's because Jesus was buried on behalf of others who deserved to be buried forever in a pit in hell. What happened at the cross so many years ago? What happened? Well, Jesus took on himself, God's servant took on himself, the wickedness, the violence, the deceit of his people. We understand that from this passage, Isaiah 53, it says it in a number of places. But look with me, for example, at verse 5 of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 5, it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus died and was buried because of God's judgment for the sin of his people. Why? Well, the wages of sin is death. And so by taking our sin upon himself, the sins of his people upon his shoulders, Jesus had to die and he had to be buried as a result of the sin that he had taken upon him. He was treated the way that we deserve to be treated. Jesus had, once he took the sin upon, of his people upon him, he had to be considered useless. He had to be considered offensive. He had to be considered dangerous and to be cut off from the land of the living. Jesus had to be treated like the way that you would treat human excrement or rotting meat because that is how he was once Sin had been put upon his shoulders. Why? Because that's what we are in our sin. In our sin, we are like waste that people want to bury ASAP. Get rid of. Because of our sin, we are offensive, we are useless, we are dangerous, and we deserve to be cut off from the land of the living. We don't always see ourselves that way, but that's what we are. That's what the Bible teaches we are offensive. You may not seem like you're offensive to those around you, but to God you are offensive in your sin. And you deserve to die and you deserve to be buried. You deserve to be considered useless, offensive, dangerous, and be cut off from the land of the living. So what happened when Jesus was assigned a grave with the wicked? He was buried for our sins and those who trust in him were buried that day too. It wasn't just Jesus who was buried that day. All those who trust in Jesus Christ were buried with Jesus. All believers in Jesus Christ were considered that day useless, offences, harmful, and were cut off from the land of the living with Jesus. And what does that then mean? Well, if we believe in Jesus, the burial we deserve for all of eternity in a pit in hell, it's been paid for. Our sin has been paid for. It is over. And what does that then mean? We will rise again by the power of the Holy Spirit just as Jesus Christ rose. When Jesus rose from the dead, when he rose from that grave, he showed that he had paid for our sin. He had paid the penalty that is deserving for those who are useless, those who are offensive, those who are dangerous, those who deserve to be cut off from the land of the living. He rose from the dead and that means all his people, all those who trust in him, rose with him. It's despicable to think that the Son of God himself could remain in a grave. To remain as one who is considered useless, offensive, dangerous. The Son of God could not remain that way. 
He was pure. He was holy. And he has all power. So of course he rose from the dead. Lowry's hymn, which we'll sing shortly, says, Death cannot keep his prey, Jesus my Saviour. He tore the bars away, Jesus my Lord. Death cannot keep its prey when it's the Son of God. So of course he rose from the dead, even after our sin had been put upon him because he was able to pay the penalty. And it's the same for us. Why? Because it's a despicable thought to think that those who are in the Son of God himself have union with Christ and have been united with with him in his death and in his burial could remain in the grave either. How could those who have been washed clean remain in the grave? No, they have been raised to life as well and will be raised to life as he was raised to life with brand new resurrection bodies, never to sin, never to die. Now you may be saying, is this really true? Is it really true about the believer that he is united with the Lord's servant and he has died, been buried and been raised to life with Christ Jesus? And the answer is yes. The Bible teaches this. And one of the clearest examples of this teaching is from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6. Turn with me now to page 1116. Romans chapter 6. And I'll read from verse 1. Page 1116, Romans chapter 6, reading from verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Here is clear teaching from the Apostle Paul that those who are in Christ Jesus, they have died with him. They've been buried with him, but they've also been raised to life with him. They have a newness of life even now, And they look forward to a resurrection body that is to come. So is Romans chapter 6 here? Is it speaking about you? Have you believed in Christ's death and burial for yourself? If not, don't you realise that you are still in your sin? And what does that mean? What does it mean? It means that you're useless. You're offensive. You're dangerous to those around you. And you deserve to be cut off from the land of the living. And that's what will happen at your death. You'll be cut off from the land of the living. You're like excrement or rotting meat that will become so offensive one day that you will be cut off by God himself. You may not be that offensive to everybody else around you and they let you dwell with them for a time. But eventually the stench gets so bad to God. Your sin is so reeking of offence to God that he will cut you off for all of eternity. May it not be. Trust in Christ Jesus today. Come before him and believe in him. Die with Christ. Be buried with Christ and raised with Christ today. Confess your wickedness. Confess your violence. 
Confess the deceit that has been in your mouth and that you deserve to be buried in a pit in hell. Acknowledge that to God. And then believe that Jesus was buried and considered useless, offensive, dangerous, and that he was cut off from the land of the living for you, for you personally. And then what? Rejoice. Rejoice with all believers over the good that came from that Good Friday so many years ago. That's why we call this Good Friday good. It seems like it's a a bad thing that happened so many years ago. We look at the death of the Lord Jesus, his burial, and it looks so bad. But much good came from it. And that is why we rejoice. That is why we commemorate the day. What do we rejoice in? Well, as we read about Christ's death and burial, we understand that it was our death and burial so many years ago, that we were there that day when he was put to death. We were there that day where he was put in a grave and cut off from the land of the living, humiliated, treated like you would treat rotting meat. We rejoice because all our wickedness, all our violence, all our deceit, all our sin has been removed and paid for. And we rejoice because our bodies will not remain useless. Our bodies will not remain offensive. Our bodies will not remain harmful and be cut off from the land of the living forever as they deserve to be. Instead, we rejoice in the fact that we're becoming more useful every day. We see this as the Holy Spirit is at work in the life of a Christian. He is more useful to the Lord and to those around him. He's less offensive than he was before. If you know a Christian, you should see that gradually they're becoming less and less offensive to you because they're becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. They're becoming more and more holy. They're becoming less and less dangerous. We see this. This is what is spoken about in Romans chapter 6 where it talks about us dying with Christ, being buried with Christ, raised with Christ, and therefore no longer sinning as we did in the past. Verse 6 For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. And so we rejoice every day as the Christian sees that he is more useful than the day before. He is less offensive than the day before. And what else do we rejoice in? Well, we rejoice that Christ's resurrection is not just Christ's resurrection, but it's also our resurrection. We rejoice in the fact of that hymn, that death cannot keep his prey, Jesus my Saviour, he tore the bars away, Jesus my Lord. That's said of us too. One day, with the call of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, death will no longer be able to keep his prey, including me and you if you trust in Jesus Christ. You will tear the bars away through Jesus your Lord. And that is a reason to rejoice. That is a reason to rejoice. And we will continue to rejoice for all of eternity in increasing measure as we realise more and more what it is that we have in Christ Jesus and what he has done for us in his death, his burial and his resurrection. Let's come to God in prayer. Let's speak to him now. Lord Jesus, we come before you and we praise you for your great love, which led you to humble yourself and come as a servant, as a man and as one who was put to death, who was crucified, and one who was buried for our sake. 
We confess that our sin has made us useless, offensive, harmful, and we deserve to be cut off from the land of the living for all of eternity. But by faith, you were considered useless. You were considered offensive. You were considered harmful. And you were cut off from the land of the living. You were buried outside the camp on our behalf. But you also rose again. And so we rejoice because we have died, we've been buried, and we've been raised with you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to continue to rejoice in the truths that are contained in Scripture about what you have done for us. And, Lord, we ask that if there is anyone here this morning who has not trusted in you, oh, Lord, we pray that they would see themselves for what they truly are outside of yourself, that they would see that they are useless and offensive and dangerous and deserve to be cut off because of their sin. And so, Lord, we pray that they would trust in Christ and die with him, be buried with him, and rise with him. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.